Christ is risen. It is good to be here. As Pastor Brent said, we're all in the afterglow. Not that we're pregnant, but we're all in the afterglow. Maybe we are pregnant in another way from the last couple of days. So let's, let's take a moment and think, Pastor Ed, David, all those who participated in making practice happen, not, not just celebrating that it happened, but that they allowed the work that God was doing in them to open up to include others in it. So, Ed, thank you for that. Thanks to all of you who are participating in it. I'm going to begin by asking a question of you so that you, I can know kind of where you're from. I grew up as a classical Pentecostal. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that means that speaking in tongues was, if not the center of what we understood the faith to be, it was in the cluster of things at the center. And I need to know kind of where I am. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. First, how many of you grew up in churches? I know sanctuary is a kind of a meeting place for people from all kinds of experiences. So how many of you grew up in churches where speaking in tongues was a staple of the diet? It happened regularly. All right, good. Now, how many of you grew up in churches where the only time you heard about speaking in tongues was when someone was explaining the work of the devil? A few. Now, in the 9 o'clock service, this, this is a sociological observation. In the 9 o'clock service, it was about 50-50. But here, I don't know what that says. That's interesting. But one more question. How many of you would say, one more two-part question. That's the way my questions work. Every question is, you know, several questions put together. So how many of you would say, if, you, if you'd be this honest with me, that praying in tongues, speaking in tongues is still a part of your spiritual life now? How many of you would say that's still something you, you don't know what to make of it? You're not, you're not saying it's of the devil, but you don't know what to make of it. My wife is raising her hand. <laughs> a few people, right? Well, it's Pentecost Sunday, and as a classical Pentecostal, I just couldn't not talk about speaking in tongues. And so we're going to give it a go. And I'm going to start by talking about my own experience of speaking in tongues. There were three modes of speaking in tongues in the church I grew up in. The first mode, but a pretty infrequent mode, actually, in terms of our experience, was speaking in tongues as what we called the initial evidence of spirit baptism. So we believed that there were three separate experiences in the Christian's life. There was what we might call being born again or getting saved. Then there was an experience we called sanctification, which was separate from your born-again experience. And then after sanctification... There was this third experience, this third blessing of the full gospel called spirit baptism. And when you were baptized in the spirit, the evidence that you'd been baptized in the spirit is that you spoke in tongues. So we emphasize those three experiences. A second way of speaking in tongues that took place in my, in my upbringing was praying in tongues. And this is where someone who had already been saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit prayed in tongues as the Spirit led them. And we were quite proud that we were not like the charismatics, whom we called cruzomatics, who believed, you know, people like TB, that you see on TBN and hear from at, at Oral Roberts University. These are the people we mocked. So you, we, we were mocking you. We, 
we believe that if you were praying in tongues, it was because the Spirit was doing it through you. You weren't choosing to do it. Right? This was the Spirit's work. And then the third form of speaking in tongues was something we called giving a message in tongues. Does anybody have any idea what that sounds and looks like? Right, A few of you, very few of you. So this is how that would work. Someone would speak in a tongue, and I'll come back and explain in just a moment how that was problematic in some ways. And then someone, either that person or someone else, would interpret it. So those are the three modes that we knew of speaking in tongues. Initial evidence, praying in tongues, message in tongues. But that created serious problems for us on many fronts. Let me give you a few examples. One is, you never could quite tell the difference between praying in tongues and giving a message in tongues. So here's how it would play out. A song is being sung. We're singing out of a red-backed hymnal because we weren't like those charismatics who sing praise and worship courses like you. <laughs> and during this singing, something like I'll fly away, someone would be praying in tongues. The music is going on and you hear Sister Bertha speaking in tongues. And so everybody is is that praying in tongues or is that a message in tongues? Because if it's praying in tongues, then we just keep singing. You know, I'll fly away, oh glory. Right? Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Right? Whatever we happen to be singing. But, but, if it's a message in tongues, then everything has to stop. As soon as you think it's a message in tongues, the, the piano player stops playing, the singer stops singing, the hymn books close, and you wait for the interpretation. But about half the time, we were caught because we weren't quite sure, right? So the way, the way we learned to make sure is that if you were the one speaking in tongues, you would just kind of raise your voice, right? You just sharpen your tone and kind of raise the volume so the people would know this is a message and not just me praying in tongues. The problem is when you live in a, a small church like that over time, you get to know one another. And you get to know those people who always have a message in tongues, right? And then it always is something strange. Let me give you an example of what I mean by strange. I, I just wanted to share some of these stories with you. This is therapy. This is therapy for me. Outdoor camp meeting. Outdoor camp meeting. The preacher says, there's so much Holy Spirit in here right now. There's so much spirit in us that if a mosquito bit me, it would fly off singing, there's power in the blood. <laughs> Almost immediately, toward the back of the auditorium, well, the, the, the building space, open air auditorium, the back of the room, so to speak, tongues burst forth from this lady. Everybody gets quiet because this is a message and not praying in tongues. And then she interprets it and says, the Lord says, this power is not for the mosquito, but for you. Right? I won't say that every message and interpretation worked like that, but many of them did. Right? Another story, the, and, and you never know, quite know if these stories are true, but the fact that these stories get told tell you something about us. This is one of my favorite stories. My friend Jonathan Martin told me this one as well. This lady stands up and gives this message, and in her message, she says, she confuses Moses and Noah. <laughs> Sits down, 
jumps right back up with another tongue. And in the interpretation says, I have borne with you in your many mistakes, and yet you do not bear with me in one mistake. <laughs> right? So you get these kind of stories. They're, they're apocryphal stories, but they point to the ways in which kind of all kinds of craziness can happen in those moments. Right? Because of that craziness, many times when someone would start raising their voice to speak and give a message in tongues, the pastor or the song leader would just raise their voice to drown that out because we didn't want to take the risk, right? So it creates this real difficulty. Another difficulty that was created for us was the difficulty of whether or not you had actually spoken in tongues or not. We had this distinction between stammering lips and speaking in tongues, because in Isaiah, and then Paul quotes it in First Corinthians, that with a, <laughs> you guys are, this is great, isn't it, right? <laughs> You're thinking, how did I miss all this good stuff, right? So they made this distinction so that if, if you're at the threshold of the experience, your lips will move, but you're not actually enunciating syllables of words. That's not quite speaking. If you're really speaking, then you say words, and they have syllables and a rhythm and so on. The problem was, in the heat of the moment, it was very difficult to decide sometimes, does this count or not? Right? Is this just stammering lips or is this speaking in tongues? And then my own personal experience brought an even new question to our community. Right? So I'm seven, eight, or nine, something like that. I'm in the altar because we always had an altar call, and they always lasted at least an hour. And the key in the altar service was you didn't want to sit in your pew. If, if the altar call is made, everyone had to come forward. Because if you sat in your pew, that meant that you're either demon-possessed or there's some kind of serious sin in your life that you're unrepentant of. So everybody comes forward. And you don't want to be the first person to get up and go back to your seat either, right? So there's a whole lot of, like, looking around to make sure. So these all services last a long time. And as was wont to happen when you're an eight-year-old kid in those kind of contexts, I'm praying to be spirit-baptized, and I fall asleep. Right? I wake up. My parents carried me home. I don't wake up until later that night, middle of the night. My parents wake me up and tell me that I woke them up praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. And they were rejoicing that I had been baptized in the Spirit. And this created a crisis for me because I didn't know if it counted because I didn't hear myself speaking in tongues. Like You didn't know this was a theological question, but it was. Like For my eight-year-old world, it was, does this count or not, or do you have to hear yourself? Right? These are some of the kinds of problems that were created. So it won't surprise you to hear that by the time I went to college, speaking in tongues really wasn't a part of my life. It seemed, at best, silly, and at worst, destructive and abusive. And all of that, I would say several years of my life, a, a chunk of that time of my life, I held all of that in disdain. It seemed to me to be goofy in the worst way something can be goofy, cheapening what it means to be a person of the Spirit. And then as I studied theology and continued to live, I started to see even that a little differently. I started to read that this is a gift that had appeared throughout the church's history. It wasn't something that started with a bunch of Pentecostals here in North America, this is something that had been going on not only in the day of Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts, but throughout the church's entire tradition. There have been these moments in which people break out in tongues. And then I actually started to read some of what sane people had to say about the practice. I didn't have a lot of sanity when I grew up. And they, they talked about how tongues is connected to prayer. And that, that prayer, imagine a box 
And inside that box is the language you know, the words you have for the experiences you have, your, your way of articulating your experience in the world. And they started to talk about tongues in a way that suggested that tongues is one of the ways in which God opens that box for us. That Think of it like this, that there are some joys in life, the experience of God, the experience of someone you love, the birth of a child. There's some joys in life that are so rich and so beautiful that they take you higher than words can go. Have you ever been in a, in a moment in which the music is beautiful and, and we're not singing, you're just hearing the music and it's, there's no way you could sing lyrics that would capture what that music is doing, right? It's higher than words can go. And prayer opens the world up in that dimension. Remember Paul prayed that we would know the love of God in its height and depth and width. And there's a way in which prayer and even prayer in tongues, it's, it's blowing the top off the box of the language we have for the world. But it also blows the sides out of that box. Because part of what praying in tongues is, is praying in tongue of other nations. What happens on the day of Pentecost is that they pray in the languages of all the nations of the earth. And it's saying that even though I'm limited in the language I can speak, and I, I don't know how to speak the language of your native country, the Spirit does. And the Spirit can connect us across the differences of our language. But it also takes the bottom out of the box because sometimes darkness in the world, the brokenness of the world, takes us into the depths of suffering that are too deep for words. Think about what Paul says in Romans 8. We're groaning because we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of this world, and we groan, and we don't even know how to pray, and the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And suddenly I saw that this practice, as, a, as abused and caricatured as it had been in my own experience, that this was a gift of the Spirit to the church. Paul is quite clear, not everyone will speak in tongues, but I've come to see that it is a gift of the Spirit to the body to help us expand what we say about God and about the world. And that the Spirit wants to teach us how to praise past the point of words and to grieve past the point of words and to move past the language barriers in communicating the gospel. It's a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift. And in some ways, it's helped me redeem my own experience. That doesn't mean I still don't see the silliness and the abuse. But to realize that there was some light shining on that practice. And yet, and yet, with all of that, I'm convinced that the Pentecostal charismatic movement was a gift to the larger body of Christ to remind the body of Christ of how God wants to blow open the box. But, the temptation for Pentecostal charismatic Christians is to think that the spirit-filled life is an escape from living in the real world. And at its worst, the spirituality that has shaped so many of us is a spirituality that tempts us to, to step out of the difficulties of everyday life, the difficulties of having to speak to one another in the language we've been given, and to think that the spirit can rescue us from that. I have a friend who talked about his was sharing a story with me about his church experience. And there was a woman who came in every service, every service, she would disrupt by dancing at the front of the church. And of course, everyone was annoyed. You know, the first time it's beautiful. And the second time it's a little odd. And by the 14th time, you're just like, would somebody please set this woman down? 
And then he heard the story. Someone, he had made some kind of snide remark, and someone said, listen, that woman, her husband's an alcoholic, and he abuses her. And this is the only day of the week where she can be in a space and not be abused. There's a kind of escape that the Spirit gives us from the ugliness of the world, and I don't want to overlook that. And yet I think there are some of us who are tempted to dance, and we're not like that woman. We're dancing because we're ignoring what we're called to pay attention to. Thomas Merton wrote an essay in the late 60s. It wasn't published until the 70s about the crisis of language. It's a prophetic critique of how language in our culture was coming apart. And he talked about the language of politicians and the language of the war machine and the language of advertising. And he talked about the language of religion and he zeroed in on speaking in tongues as an example of a problem he saw culture-wide. And I think he's putting his finger on the nerve of this escapism that I think all of us are tempted to. This is what Merton said. Speaking in tongues is in its own way an expression of a curious kind of radicalism, a reaction to a religious language that is perhaps obscurely felt to be inadequate. Fundamentalist religion assumes that the unknown language spoken in the spirit is, though unintelligible, more real than the ordinary, tired, everyday language that everybody knows too well. Let me just stop. I'm going to keep reading in just a moment, but stop and think about that. That speaking in tongues is more real than the ordinary, everyday, tired language we already know. And I think this is symptomatic of this larger temptation we have as Pentecostals and Charismatics to look for something more real than the ordinary. We don't want ordinary preaching. We want somebody who can really do it. You're especially wanting that right now. We, want, we don't want just someone to lead us in singing. We want someone who can sing. We don't want to go through rituals, tired old rituals of saying the same prayers and kneeling in the same ways. We want something fresh and exciting. And there is an importance to remaining lively in our worship. And yet, we live in a world in which the ordinary, everyday, tired language is a gift from God, and we cannot and should not seek to escape it. And there is, I believe, a temptation to escape it, to try to find rescue in the Spirit from living in the world. Merton goes on to say, whoever speaks in an unknown tongue can speak safely without fear of contradiction. Now, if any of you have ever been around anybody who's Pentecostal charismatic in any way, you've seen this happen. You try to talk to them sensibly about something that's happening in their life and not before too long they reach into their sleeve and pull out the ace of God told me so. Game over, right? What are you going to say when she says God told me to marry him? Game over. And that is exactly the kind of escape that Merton is putting his finger on. His utterance, this utterance, is definitive in the sense that it closes down, forecloses all dialogue. So what I want to do now is turn to Acts 2 and read the story of Pentecost with the question of, is it possible that we're being tempted, maybe not all of us, but some of us, being tempted to escape from the real life God has called us to 
to use our experience of God, our life in God, the life of the Spirit, as a way of refusing the responsibility that's been given us. Acts 2, 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues like fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. In telling the story this way, Luke is drawing attention to the signs of Sinai, the giving of the law, wind and fire. And he's paralleling this with the experience of Jesus at his baptism, where the Spirit rests on Jesus. Think about the way Luke tells the story. Jesus comes up out of the waters of the Jordan, and the Spirit, in the form of a dove, rests on him. Now think about the biblical narrative. Where have we heard the story of a body coming up out of the water and a dove resting on it? Story of the flood. Luke is pointing us to Jesus as the new creation. That God has washed away the sin and all of the ugliness that we've wrecked in the world. And the Spirit is resting on Jesus as the new creation. The beginning of God putting right what had gone wrong. And in the same way, when the Spirit comes to rest on these apostles and disciples, these followers of Jesus, Luke is saying, this is like Sinai. Only at Sinai, one man went up alone into the cloud while the people remained at the base of the mountain. But here, the people, each of them, become the mountain. The wind sweeps among them and the fire rests upon each of them. Each one of them is Sinai. The law is written on their hearts. It's tattooed on their spirits. They are embodying the law and the will and the character of God. And yet, just like in Jesus' baptism, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, he immediately moves us into the ugliness of the world. Remember what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water? The Father says, this is my Son. And the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And on the day of Pentecost, the fire falls, the wind sweeps, they speak in the tongue of every nation under heaven, and immediately they're thrust into the real world. And this is one of the ways in which you can mark the true work of God from the inauthentic. Does it move you into the world or out of the world? Is it leading you to escape and to forget the brokenness of the people around you, or is it making you more aware? Because the Spirit never takes us out of the world. The Spirit opens our eyes to the world. We used to sing this chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. No! No, 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 no. Look at Jesus, and the things of this world will shine with the light that is in his face. Look at Jesus and you will see that light in your neighbor's face, in your enemy's face, in the face of the panhandler at the intersection. You will see the light of Jesus there. The true work of the Spirit thrusts us out into the world, out into the wilderness. And we know this because the, the apostles, the disciples, they're speaking in tongues. And the response, and this is another mark of the true move of the Spirit, is that people are amazed, perplexed, confused. Notice how often Luke tells us this, verse 6. And this sound, the sound 
of all of these language means, all these languages being spoken. This sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered. Each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished. They asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hear in our own native language? Luke tells us all of the places these apostles are from. All were amazed, verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed. This is the mark of the true move of the Spirit. Nobody knows what's going on. See, our, our, I, at least too often, the way we read the Pentecost story, we put all the emphasis on, and the Spirit fell with fire. I should get into Pentecostal preacher mode here. And the Spirit fell. <laughs> tongues of fire set on each of them. They spoke in tongues. Right? And the response was, what is this? The people speaking didn't know what they were saying, and the people hearing knew what they were saying, but had no idea why they were saying it. Because the authentic work of the Spirit is something we cannot understand. God's ways are not our ways. His desires for us are more than we could dare to ask or imagine to ask for. And so when the Spirit is moving, the response, the most positive response we can hope for is people to come near and say, what is this? The only people who didn't ask, what is this, sneered and said, we know what this is. They're drunk with new wine. Because an authentic move of the Spirit creates those two responses, curiosity and misjudgment. What it doesn't create is an escape from the world. And notice what happens when these people gather around. You've got the sneering group judging them. These people are drunk with new wine. And Peter responds in his own language. The Spirit had fallen upon Peter. But when it came time to speak to those real people gathered around him, he had to use the language he knew. He was being thrust out into the wilderness of his own world. He had to speak to them. And what he says is, oh no, these people are not drunk like that. It's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Catch us later in the day and maybe... <laughs> But no, no, right now, this isn't that. This is what Joel was talking about. And that's what it means to be truly Pentecostal. To be truly Pentecostal is not to steal away from the world and wait on the Spirit to fall on you. To be truly Pentecostal is to let people draw near with their questions and their misjudgments. And to look them in the eye and say, oh, no, no, no. God's sovereignty isn't like that. I know you didn't expect your child to die. But God didn't steal your child from you. This was not punishment for some sin in your life. God's sovereignty isn't like that. It's like this. This is not that, Peter said. It's that. I know you've heard that sanctification is really just another form of religious oppression. It's legalism. It's making demands of you that you can't meet. But, but holiness and sanctification, it's not like that. It's like that. It's about joy. It's about throwing your life on God and trusting him completely in every way. Thanks, sanctification has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with that. And that is what it means to be the church. To let those people come to us with their questions. 
whatever their motives, whether they're judging us or they're genuinely curious and open, let them come with their questions about who God is and what God is like and what God has done and hasn't done and who they are and who we are and what it looks like to be authentically human. Let them come and ask what's going on. And then we say, oh, this isn't that. It's that. That's who we're called to be. And I end with this story. Yesterday, my beautiful wife left the conference for just a few minutes to run to get me something to drink. That's the way she is. And while she was away, she saw a woman holding a sign, a Hispanic woman holding a sign that said, Need, needs diapers and gas. Is that what it said? And my wife, being the woman she is, realized that this woman, you could tell, she said, from the way that she looked, that she was terribly hot, terribly tired, and distraught. She had two young kids, and her husband also had a sign and was standing on the other side of the road. So my wife stopped, took her into a restaurant nearby, bought them some food, and then tried to start talking to them. And they didn't speak much, if any, English. And so for the next hour or so, my wife is trying to, to hear what they need. Diapers and gas, but what else do you need? What, where are you headed? What is this? And when she's telling me the story, she kept saying, I don't know what they meant. They kept saying this. I don't know what they meant. It was mostly Spanish with a few English words thrown in, but I couldn't make sense of it. And I realized that's Pentecost. That's the Pentecostal life. It's sitting down with somebody, and you never really understand what they're saying because they can't say it like they want to. But what you do in that moment, and she described this to me, she said, I was just sitting there, and I put my hand on her leg, and I just kept saying, it's going to be okay. Now, who knows all the misunderstandings that, that went on between them, but underneath all the misunderstanding and all the struggle to communicate, it's going to be okay. That's Pentecost. That's the work of the Spirit. When we get into the real world all around us, at work, at home, and we sit down and we struggle with words we've been given to just let people know, listen, all is well and all shall be well. God is good and he means good for you. And your life is more than you know it to be. And this is not what you think it is. This is that. Let it be, Spirit. Spirit.